Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This is Colin Yeo and I'm joined again by CJ McKinney, my colleague. We are covering um, blog posts from November 2019. So this month we are going over the ramifications of the Supreme Court decision in Hemati, as well as recent developments in asylum and in trafficking. We're going to look at the D'Souza case on the Good Friday Agreement and British nationality, which has been reported by the Upper Tribunal, um, and long we're going to have a look at a bunch of procedural cases as well. And we've got uh, a last look at um, the latest in deportation law from the Court of Appeal, which unusually, spoiler alert, is actually not all bad news this time. Okay, um, we've got over 100 hours of CPD training available on Free Movement these days. If you want to sign up as a member and take advantage of that, then head to www.freemovement.org.uk slash training. CJ, over to you. Yes, we'll start, as you say, with the Hamati case, which is about immigration detention. And the Supreme Court's given a significant judgment there on the detention of asylum seekers pending their removal to other European countries under the Dublin regulation. Essentially, anyone who fits that description, an asylum seeker who is detained pending removal, um, between the 1st of January 2014 and the 15th of March 2017, was unlawfully detained because the UK had failed to bring its regulations, laws on detention up to EU standards. Uh, The case is, uh, the citation is 2019 UKSC 56, and I think potentially thousands of people might be entitled to damages now, Colin. Yeah, we, it's very difficult to know how many because the Home Office um, isn't disclosing numbers. But um, I think you took a look at the, the stats, CJ, and found that there had been around 10,000 take-back requests during that period um, where the UK had asked other EU states to accept people back. But of course, we don't know how many of those um, take-back requests were accepted and there could have been duplicates or there could be all sorts of other things. So the 10,000 figure isn't a robust number, but it gives us a a rough idea that we're talking about potentially thousands of people here anyway. Um, And essentially, you know, this is saying that they were unlawfully detained if they were detained um, prior to removal under Dublin. So it's very big news in those cases. And uh, it looks like proper compensation is going to be awarded as well, not just um, nominal compensation as in some unlawful detention cases. Um, of course, it, it's it's some in some ways it's not that exciting unless you are one of those people because it's time limited and because that the Home Office belatedly introduced the necessary regulations and so detentions which have taken place and started since the fifteenth of March two thousand and seventeen um, aren't unlawful at least for the reasons you know they're, they're not unlawful because of this Hamati case anyway and um, they might be unlawful for for other reasons so it, it's not a judgment that has much kind of ongoing impact as such um, apart from the kind of on a policy level I felt I know I, I wrote this one up myself and it's quite striking that you know the the UK basically has little to no protection against arbitrary detention and um you know eu law is is superior in that sense and it's not as if eu law protections were well up to all that much um but but the uk doesn't even even reach those kinds of relatively low standards so it's quite quite interesting from from that point of view um, yeah, you you managed to inject a sort of grim note into an otherwise positive decision there. <laughs> <laughs> That's my speciality. Um, there was also a kind of, um, you know, in, interesting if you're um, sort of follow the jurisprudence on this stuff, but in the end, the Supreme Court actually didn't decide it. But a question of whether a statement of policy and a principle of public law adherence can ever amount to a binding provision of general application and therefore a law. 
And you know, that, that's quite an interesting question, potentially. Um, but the Supreme Court sort of looks at it, recites the arguments, and then says, ah, but we're not going to decide it anyway. So um, it's quite tantalising, but, uh, but, but they don't go there. Cool. Just a quick mention of some other detention news. The investigation into abuse at the Brookhouse Detention Centre has now been upgraded to a full public inquiry. Uh, that news was released on the day that Parliament, Parliament was dissolved for the recent general election. So you may have missed it, which was probably the idea of releasing the information on that day. Um, but that inquiry is due to report within a year. To asylum then, and an interesting Court of Appeal case on the defence against criminal prosecution for refugees who use false passports, false documents while fleeing persecution. That defence extends to refugees who are just passing through the UK en route to claiming refugee status elsewhere. And in this case, Mr. Ida Hossa was trying to get to Canada. He had problems with his connecting flight and he ended up stranded in the UK for 54 days. Eventually left, was caught with someone else's passport, pleaded guilty. But the Court of Appeal said he should have been advised about the defence that's available to refugees in these circumstances, uh, and he wasn't. So they uh, questioned his conviction, even though it was a 54 days, you might think it was quite a long stopover. Uh, the citation there is Idahosa uh, versus Regina, 2019, EWCA, CRIM 1953. Anything to add on not really. I mean, it, it it sucks, doesn't it, if you get prosecuted for trying to get out of the UK as as well as trying to get in. And and we do see these cases from time to time. Um, we've also, unfortunately, this does seem to continue the trend of um, people not getting proper advice on defences under the Refugee Convention and under Section 31 of the, the 99 Act. Um, hopefully that's happening less than it, it used to because the Court of Appeal has been quite critical of lawyers in, in the past. Um but you know there are still some cases where where it's happening, and you can perhaps be you know a bit more sympathetic to the lawyer in this case than than in some others because it's quite a long stopover. Um, but it, it seems on the facts that it's clear that you know it, it was genuinely a stopover. He was genuinely in transit, and um, so therefore the defence applied. Yeah, I think he was trying to get out for each of the fifty four days. He was sort of maybe done over by an agent or or something like that. Um, so it was an innocent on his part. Um, another Court of Appeal decision on asylum then, this one in the Civil Division. Uh, members of the Tamil Tigers who were detained by the Sri Lankan government but escaped uh, are at risk of persecution in Sri Lanka is the finding in the case of RS Sri Lanka 2019 EWCA Civ 1796, which seems like a statement of the obvious for even for me who doesn't know much about Sri Lanka, but uh, neither immigration tribunal reached that conclusion. Um, it was took the Court of Appeal to say that escapees from the Sri Lankan government um, who are Tamil Tigers are, are at risk. Yeah, it, it's a really welcome decision, um, but it's just bizarre that it was even needed in the first place. As you say, it seems like a statement of the, I'll go further, a statement of the bleeding obvious. Um, it's, it, it does feel like um, Tamils have a, a different standard, frankly, applied to them in asylum cases where you know they, they come forward with horrible physical torture scars on them and all sorts of you know country information suggesting a high risk of persecution and yet judges and the home office seem to find some way of of refusing them if you think if it came from any other country you think these people would be recognized as refugees quite quickly um and and that's kind of what looks like as seems to have happened frankly in this case where where the court of appeal say yeah if you've you know if you've got factual findings that you've 
um, escape from detention, then of, of course the authority is going to be looking for you and you get back. You don't need you know, concrete positive evidence to, to, to establish that. It's, um, it's pretty obvious. So, there we go. <laughs> Rant over. Uh, we'll move to another group of refugees who I think maybe get a hard time in the tribunals. Um, Somalian refugees, a reported decision from the upper tribunal on those cases. Um, the decision covers what should happen if the Home Office tries to cease somebody's refugee status on the basis that it's safe for them to return to Somalia. And the finding is that it's possible in principle for the Home Office to cease that refugee protection if the person can relocate to Mogadishu within Somalia. Uh, but it's still on the Home Office to demonstrate that internal relocation is reasonable. Uh, the citation SB Refugee Revocation IDP Camps Somalia 2019 UKUT 358 IAC. Is that significant, Colin? There. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of background to this, isn't there? Because we've we've written up what's going on here in several different contexts. Some of it's been case law. Some of it's been reports from from the Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration, where basically the Home Office is using the cessation provisions of the Refugee Convention in lieu of the exclusion clause, um, Article 32 of the Refugee Convention, where a host state is enabled to expel a genuine refugee um, if if, if they meet certain tests on on public safety and public security and so on. Um, It's quite a hard test to meet, though, for the Home Office. And so instead, they're, they're sidestepping it by saying, well, um, the Refugee Convention also enables us to cease refugee status if things are safe back home. Um, we're not reviewing all Somali cases, but being as we just happen to be looking at yours, we've decided that we're going to we're going to cease refugee status. And there's been quite a few reported cases in the upper tribunal. There's been at least one, I think, more than one um, judgment in the in the Court of Appeal now on this as well. Um, opinions seem to differ as to whether the right approach was to apply internal relocation or not. I think the tribunal originally said not. I think the Court of Appeal said yes, and this is the tribunal sort of confirming they're going to going to follow that essentially. Um, so it means that, you know, people who left the country a long time ago as, as small children are basically being told that um, they're going to have to go back because um, things have changed so much there. And they also have to show that they can't internally relocate to somewhere like Mogadishu, even though it's a, a city that they, they they simply don't know at all, having having left, as I say, as a very small child. So it's a it's a very difficult situation these people find themselves in. Although, of course, you know that that is probably following fairly serious criminality. I'm not quite sure the facts of this particular case were though. Yeah, I don't remember either, but it's, yeah, I mean, it is the, I suppose the Home Office is using this as a backdoor to remove people on the basis of their, their conduct, um, which, as you say, is usually, is usually criminal offending. Uh, let us then look at a couple of cases on human trafficking, which is always an interesting, if, if deeply sad, area of law. The first case says that someone who is trying to stay in the UK on the basis of their human rights can succeed if they can show that they should have been officially recognised as a victim of trafficking, but were not. Uh, the citation there, DC Trafficking Protection slash Human Rights Appeals, Albania, 2019 UKUT 351 IAC. Anything to add on that one, Carl? Not really. I mean, well, welcome decision. It's good that um, this is justiciable even in a human rights appeal. So good, good news generally. 
And more good news for trafficking victims, the Home Office has changed its internal process for reviewing trafficking decisions following a defeat in the High Court. So this, the context for this is where the, the Home Office decides that someone is not a victim of trafficking and so it doesn't get the state support that confirmed victims get. That decision cannot be formally appealed if the Home Office decides the person is not a sort of official victim. And the High Court has confirmed that the process for requesting an internal reconsideration is unlawful because the Home Office was just ignoring new evidence if it didn't come from a tight list of approved sources. Uh, so as a result of that litigation, the process has now been changed and Francis Lippen of Dayton Pierce Glynn says that as a result of the change, many more victims and potential victims of trafficking will be able to secure a review of their decision from the Home Office. So that's good. Yeah, really, really good news. Just unalloyed good, um, as, as they say. And um, it has bizarre policy the Home Office had in place and sort of stopping lawyers from um, you know, triggering these reconsiderations and forcing judicial review applications to be brought instead. It just doesn't make any sense at all. So great to see that it's gone. Yeah, I think Francis was saying that all the or a good chunk of the judicial reviews that she launched as a result were succeeding. So it, it seemed counterproductive, even from the Home Office point of view. Um, yeah. But moving on to another upper tribunal decision, this one uh, you flagged at the start called made headlines when the result was announced a few months ago, um, but it's only recently been officially reported uh, for legal purposes. And um, this is the D'Souza case in which it's argued that people born in Northern Ireland cannot be born automatically British because of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, it's a big political row, but the, the legal point in the case was reasonably straightforward. Uh, most people born in Northern Ireland are dual nationals, Irish and British, because that's what Irish and British citizenship laws say. And the Good Friday, Good Friday Agreement doesn't override domestic statutes, uh, which is a, a reasonably basic point, I think, legally. And the citation, D'Souza, Good Friday Agreement, Nationality, United States of America, 2019, UKUT 355, IAC. Um, I think, Colin, you sort of called that result uh, a long time back when it, it first came from the first tier tribunal. Yes. I mean, it, it, for some of, from a pure law point of view, it's difficult to see why this case has sort of attracted the attention that it has, because the outcome seems, frankly, really obvious from a, a legal point of view. And it was, I think, the first tier somehow... Um, allowed the appeal, um, sort of disapplying um, the British Nationality Act, uh, which was frankly bizarre. Um, but um, you, know, you can see from a, a political point of view why the claimants are very unhappy about this. Um, but if they if they got what they wanted in this case, it would mean that children were born without nationality in Northern Ireland, born stateless, and they'd have to opt in at some point later in life. Inevitably, some wouldn't. You know, it, it would be a really difficult, unworkable, and damaging state of affairs if that were were the case. And that's not. I know, that's nothing to say there that she's she's not right to be annoyed about sort of having her British citizenship imposed on her. Um, but it's just that's how nationality law works, um, unfortunately, from her point of view. Turning then to children, 
Ben Amonua has a case which he says is good news for European uh, children, but quite wise, it's slightly over my head. So I'll ask you to summarise, Colin, once I've given the citation, which is MS British Citizenship EEA Appeals Belgium 2019 UK UT 356 IAC. Yeah, I think it's might be possibly a bit over the top of my head as well. And it it looks like a welcome decision to me. It's, It's kind of looking at the factual background. It was pretty chaotic and messy, very unpleasant. There'd been abuse. Um, the, the claimant had been born in Belgium, moved to the UK at an early age, went back to Belgium, back to the UK. Um, and then there was, there, there was some criminality of some sort later on. Um, and the question is, you know, how do you apply the very rigid um, laws on human rights and deportation in a case where you've got an EU citizen of this nature? Um, and it's it, it looks like it's good news, but I, it left me wondering whether the tribunal was rather bending the law here, and that you know that that's kind of welcome in lots of ways because you don't want silly laws to be applied to people. On the other hand, you know, only sort of rather selectively disapplying it to EU citizens seems uh, not strictly speaking terribly lawful either. Um, so. Yeah, it's a slightly strange decision. And it's it's interesting as well to see that the tribunal basically agrees with the Home Office and the Home Office sort of actually making this point despite the controversy around it, which is that EU citizens who are in the UK and aren't exercising treaty, treaty rights and don't have leave are basically unlawfully resident. Um, and you know that that's quite an important point that a few of us have been banging on about for a long time. Home Office have been kind of refusing to concede it because um, there's a whole load of EU citizens who are self-sufficient, so you know they can be quite quite wealthy even, um, but they don't have comprehensive sickness insurance, which is required by EU law. Home Office says that comprehensive sickness insurance um, doesn't include access to the NHS, even though they're actually entitled to access to the NHS, and basically those people are unlawful. Um, None of that's really going to matter after Brexit. They're, they're still entitled to apply under the settled status scheme and so on. They're, they're, they can become lawful very easily. The Home Office isn't talking about going around in a van and rounding these people up, generally speaking. But you know, it's quite a striking um, statement of law that that that, that is the case. Um, and as I say, I just sort of wrap it up. It's welcome that the tribunal here is saying that children in this particular situation um, should have the law applied to them flexibly um and that's that's good news in this case and in other sort of similar cases but you know the law should be applied flexibly in other cases as well and and it just sort of highlights how how daft these laws actually are uh, handy summary thank you very much uh just finally on the theme of children i wanted to share a bit of good news we had an article uh, this month by Bethan Lant from the charity Praxis about her client whose 13-year-old son was stranded in Ghana because the family just didn't have the application money to get him a visa. Um, really highlighted the terrible human impact of immigration fees. Um, but the happy outcome there is that after writing about it on free movement, Bethan set up a crowdfunder for the family and raised the money in like 48 hours. It, it just, it, it, the money flew in. Um, and I, I didn't, well up at all when I heard that news. It was uh, <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, moving from happy stories to procedure, there's just a few more tidbits to cover. Um, one about invalid applications. Uh, so in this case, the chap had applied to extend his student visa on the wrong application form 10 years ago, 
and it only came back to haunt him when he applied for settlement uh, a decade later. The application on the wrong form was invalid, so he was uh, an overstayer for a few months, and that was uh, fatal to his chances of settlement, uh, was the decision. Uh, the citation DAS, paragraph 276B, uh, S3C, application validity, Bangladesh, 2019, UKUT 354 IAC. I think, to be fair, Colin, these invalidity cases are becoming less and less common with everything going online, right? Yeah, I, these kind of cases are sort of heartbreaking in a way. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's very bad news for, for the applicants concerned where they've been in the UK for a really long time. They've done nothing wrong. And some sort of really technical minor mistake years ago comes back to haunt them. And it means that they have to leave the UK. They don't have any basis for being here. Um, and in this case, it was just a very slightly out of date application form. So I think he was using a form that had been issued in April 2008 um, but uh, very quickly that had been changed by a new form in August 2008. And when he was applying in September 2008, he used the April, not the August form. You know, it, the, it, the Home Office didn't make a fuss of it at the time. It wasn't a problem at the time. But because there was a sort of delay between um, the, the, the second application going in and his leave having expired in the meantime, and it was an invalid application, Section 3C didn't apply. And basically, short story is, you know, he was screwed. Um, so he, he couldn't qualify under the, the, the 10 year rule. It, it's, things have been improved since then. The application process is, um, hardly wonderful. There are all sorts of problems with it, but one of the sort of beneficial effects of the new procedures is that it does more or less inv- you know, eliminate invalid applications. And the only problem, which I think is, is, is highlighted by Ian in this case, is sometimes we're getting your biometrics done, your fingerprints done. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a lot better than it used to be from, from the point of view of being caught out by an invalid application. Absolutely. Moving on to another case written up by Ian, who's our, becoming our resident procedural expert. Uh, this one is about service of immigration decisions. And if you don't receive a letter from the Home Office, what happens? The High Court here saying that the Home Office is entitled to presume you've received a decision letter if it's been served in line with uh, the regulations. But you can reverse that presumption simply by proving that you didn't receive the letter and that you didn't act in bad faith, like deliberately avoid service, essentially. Uh, so that yeah. case, oh, sorry, I was just going to do the citation, which is uh, 2019 EW HC2952 yeah, it's quite a nice decision. This one, um, you get the feeling the judge might be um, bending over backwards to try and be find find a sort of helpful way through. In some, in some ways, it might be the case. Um, but essentially, it overturns a, a previous upper tribunal case called Mahmood from 2016 on the meaning of the word "given." Whether you've been given a decision in Mahmood, um, they held that being sent the decision was being given. In this case, they held that you know actually you've you've got to receive it for it to be given. It essentially, um, and there's this as you say this sort of reversal of the burden of proof and so on. So um, good news for those who you know have done something, um, but that they shouldn't have done perhaps by like falling out of touch with the home office, um, but have done it innocently and acted in good faith as as this um, claimant apparently had. Absolutely. A rather disturbing case then about course interpreters called TS Interpreters Eritrea 2019 UKUT 352 ISC. Basically, there were problems with the interpreter during an asylum hearing at Hatton Cross, allegedly not translating everything the applicant was saying. Um, the judge at the hearing didn't want to know, um, but the upper tribunal found that 
these issues in the hearing were probably enough to allow an appeal. Uh, but what was definitely enough to allow the appeal was that the interpreter, after the hearing, went on a rant to the appellant's lawyer at the bus stop, uh, going on about the appellant being a liar and lots of other things that called her uh, objectivity, I suppose, into, into question. Uh, is this often a problem, Colin? Well, I suppose maybe this particular issue, but I mean, problems with interpreters during the hearing more generally. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of there are a few um, elephants in the room in in um, hearings generally. Um, you know, witness one of my bugbears is that witness statements are very seldom going to be the actual client or witnesses' actual words, and, and lawyers pretend that they are, and it's like heresy to suggest otherwise. Um, another, in, in specifically in immigration asylum cases, the idea that you can accurately and instantly translate word for word what the person is saying from one language to quite a different language with a different sort of grammatical structure and um different mode of expression and so on it's just rubbish you know that, that you, you can't do that you can you can translate the gist and the meaning perhaps but the, there's always going to be some ambiguity about meaning which 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 may well get lost and in some cases you know it, it becomes clear that the interpreter isn't even doing that great a job of that either um, in this case, the, the judge was um, very unsympathetic. So that judge has subsequently retired, we understand, Garrett Jones QC at Hatton Cross. Um, and it was only because of this um, sort of chance encounter at a bus stop that I have to say I know very well from my own experience. Um, you know, what, what would happen if the, the bus had come a bit sooner and the interpreter you know, wasn't there when the barrister arrived? You know, the rant would never have occurred and the, the, the case would have been allowed to stand. And what the interpreter said at the bus stop was um, clearly biased. You know, they 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 were very pro regime. Um, felt that the client had been lying, and you know, it really did open the possibility that the interpreter had been deliberately trying to torpedo the case. Essentially, um, I suppose you, it, you you wonder, yeah, is that a, a thoroughgoing problem with uh, with with hearings with interpreters? Yeah, and this one only came out completely by chance. How often? Had she interpreted in other cases? How many other interpreters are behaving like this? And it's like, I don't want to be really alarmist and, and excited about it. You know, I don't know how big a scale problem it is. Those are genuine questions. You know, I, I, maybe maybe this was the first appeal she'd ever done, or maybe she'd only ever done a handful of them or something or um, whatever. And, and there aren't that many regimes where you get really heavily sort of politicized opinions within the diaspora residents in the UK Eritrea, I think, is one of them. You, you could have that for other countries like Iran, perhaps, where you, you get people who are, you know, very strongly um, sort of opposed to to, to another person's um, political outlook. I've wondered about it in in religious cases. You know, when you're representing an Ahmadi, for example, that they are very badly persecuted in Pakistan. They're very unpopular in the community here in the UK as well, Muslim community here in the UK. Um, if how how good a job is the interpreter doing where they they rather disapprove of and and frown on on the person's opinions and beliefs um so it it raises all of those questions and it it felt to me reading the determination like the tribunal was just totally ignoring all of those issues or was completely unwilling to contemplate that that might be an issue and this kind of pretense that interpreters always do a really good job um, and unless you can sort of definitively scientifically prove otherwise um, is it, a bit of a nonsense really 
But yeah, the judges perhaps think they have enough problems to be to be grappling with. Uh, finally, one slightly weird procedural case to report: Ahmed Rule Eighteen PTA Family Court Materials, Pakistan, twenty nineteen UKUT three five seven IAC. Uh, if you are fighting a Home Office appeal against the decision of the First Tier Tribunal, and you, as the uh, person f- resisting the Home Office appeal, write to the Upper Tribunal saying you wish to withdraw the appeal, they will take that to mean that you are abandoning your defence of the appeal. Uh, thankfully for Mr. Ahmed, in this case, the Court of Appeal took pity on him. Uh, the lawyers, uh, his representatives, had obviously got mixed up, but uh, a good lesson in paying attention to what side you're on, I suppose, if, if that needs to be a lesson. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of easy to be sympathetic to the lawyers in this case because um, yeah, you can often feel like even when the Home Office is appealing, you're the ones who are having to make the running, frankly. Um, but there was a, a slightly nasty sting in the tail, potentially, with this case as well because it, it turned out that they might have um, the lawyers might have disclosed documents from the family proceedings um, you know sort of irrelevant to the procedural point but um, but it's worth a reminder to, to listeners um, it looked like they might have disclosed documents from the family proceedings without permission of the the family court which would be potentially um, very bad news for them and um, you know in, in in one recent case had led to um, disbarment um, which I think was eventually overturned but you know that that is basically potentially contempt of court so it's a pretty serious matter. Absolutely, and we've got a good piece by Rachel Francis on that whole issue of disclosure of, of family court materials, which we flagged before, I think. Uh, finally then, as we're going way over time, a useful deportation case called CI Nigeria 2019 EWCA Civ 2027. The Court of Appeal here goes into the meaning of various core concepts in deportation law, such as lawful residence, social and cultural integration, and very significant obstacles to integration. And I think quite helpful findings, for instance, on the integration point, uh, it said judges should decide whether someone is integrated in the UK or not on the facts, rather than by treating time spent in prison as automatically severing the person's integrative links with the UK. Um, as I say, Colin, we're uh, under time pressure, but anything else you want to uh, highlight from that one? No, it's, it's a really good case, and it's really useful for, for other deportation cases involving kind of long residence since childhood. So I really recommend that people take a look. And it's, it's very welcome as well to see the Court of Appeal um, kind of kiboshing this uh, circular argument that if you are if you've committed criminal offences you've broken your um integration and therefore you can't rely on one of the exceptions so it's like the exceptions only are only ever going to be any use to you if you've committed criminal offences because that's the context in which they arise and they you know and and you're automatically unable to rely on them on the approach that the tribunal had followed twice in this case you know it's been to the upper, it was allowed in the first tier overturned by the upper tribunal sent back by the court of appeal refused again by the upper tribunal it's been sent back again by the court of appeal it's you know the upper tribunal really needs to think very carefully sometimes about what it's doing in these deportation cases an evergreen comment i think right well i think that wraps up for this month um so we are recording this just for christmas so merry christmas to our listeners and um, we'll be back next month goodbye <laughs>